1: Three great words, free fries, Friday, especially when they're used in that exact order. Get a free medium fries with $1 minimum purchase. Bell one time on Fridays at participating McDonald's through twelve thirty one twenty four. Excludes tax, must update rewards.
0: Hello and welcome to Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Alice Hipscomb-Southwell, the managing editor at BBC Science Focus magazine. BBC's Wild Isles is currently showing on our screen on Sunday nights, shining a light on some of the wildlife of the UK. To find out even more about some of the incredible animals and plants featured in the programme, we spoke to Dr Philip Wheeler. He's a senior lecturer of ecology and also an academic consultant on the series. Here, he tells us all about dormice, puffins, woodlands and how we can help UK nature.
1: I'm Dr. Phil Wheeler. I'm a senior lecturer in ecology at the Open University and I teach students about ecology and environmental science and do a variety of research on wildlife in the UK and and in the tropics. Um, But most recently I've been working on trees and particularly on urban trees and the wildlife that lives around them.
0: And is it right that you've been working on the new BBC series of Wild Isles as well?
1: Yeah, that's right. So my role in that, along with my colleague Mandy Dyson, has been as a, an academic consultant to the series from the OU. Uh, we've got this long-running relationship association with the BBC, where we contribute to quite a lot of the factual programming. And so mine and Mandy's role in uh, Wild Isles was was to do that as academic consultants. So to provide some input, a bit of fact-checking, identifying interesting things that that we see Uh, when when we're sort of reviewing the early stages of the, the rough cuts of the footage
0: so i mean it's currently showing on bbc one at the moment and it's showcasing british wildlife now british wildlife i suppose you'd say is under our noses but it's not really had as much attention as some of the other environments so have you any ideas why that might be
1: well, things exotic things are, always have a sort of a different sort of interest. You know, I think, I suppose, there's something very exciting about switching on and seeing something that you you've never seen before in a completely unfamiliar place. But I suppose, as, as a, a kind of island off the coast of Europe, then then we aren't necessarily as rich in wildlife as many other places. Obviously, then you know. The, most of the species uh, in the world are, are around tropical regions, and in the kind of northern areas, then we have far, far fewer species anyway. And islands tend to have fewer species than the, the sort of big areas of the continents, and particularly where we are, is, of course, as well. The, we kind of last ice age uh, covered most of the land in ice, and and so we're still kind of in a phase of of nature recolonizing after that. So, so Britain and Ireland are relatively poor in wildlife, and also there are. No over the last decades and in fact centuries, then we've done quite a good job at reducing our wildlife, both the abundance and the variety of it. Um, So there's certainly not enough or not as much to see in Britain and Ireland as there is in many other parts of the world.
0: And that was one thing I know David Atterman touched on in the first episode where he said we're quite a nature-poor country. We're perhaps one of the most nature-poor countries in the world. I mean, obviously, some of that is natural because, as you said, with the ice sheets retreating and we're an island nation. But is there anything we could do to maybe improve this to make us less nature-poor?
1: There's there's lots of things. I, I think we should kind of recognise that that there is only one world, and and the world as it is. You know, I'm somebody who studies the natural world, and and actually the fact that, that in some places there are more species, and in other places there are fewer. That's actually quite a fascinating thing. It's 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 an interesting aspect of the history of the world and the history of nature. And so so I don't think we should be ashamed <laughs> that we live in a place that just because of the amazing history of our planet has naturally got fewer species, but we have. Uh, relatively high population density the way that we've used and exploited the land over decades and centuries has meant that we've we've diminished the space for nature very considerably and and I think that the phrase that is used and is used in the series is nature depleted so it's it's not just that there are fewer species there it's that of the species and of the bits of the natural world that were present there's relatively little of it left And so a big part of that is actually making more space for nature and identifying places where without too much conflict, we can just let nature come back a bit more and and maybe sort of change the way that we go about our daily lives, the way that we uh, use transport, but also the way that we manage the little bits of land that we have. So if you have a garden, making it more wildlife friendly, avoiding using uh, pesticides or herbicides and maybe not making it so sort of prim and proper and neat and tidy and letting a, a little bit of the wild come back into your garden There are things that that we can do as individuals and and then i think to to encourage individuals and organizations that that have got uh, that are able to to do things on bigger scales so so governments or, or businesses um, or whole industries to really seriously think about what they can do to change uh what they do to let nature come back a bit more. Uh, And I think that includes putting pressure on on our kind of elected representatives where it's appropriate to do so, to to really see nature as a priority alongside the many other priorities that politicians have to consider.
0: I mean, there have been some success stories, haven't there? One of the scenes in the first episode was where you saw these white-tailed eagles and they were hunting the barnacle geese. So it shows that in these certain pockets, when you can reintroduce animals, they can do really well.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that's that's a positive that we can take from the recent history of nature conservation is that given the right circumstances, nature really comes comes back and comes roaring back, and so there have been uh, some really brilliant examples of where nature has, has been restored or, or where it's restored itself. So so, the white-tailed eagles is a brilliant one. And now there's moves to increase the spread of white-tailed eagles with a reintroduction in the Isle of Wight and talk about bringing white-tailed eagles back to, to other parts of Britain and to Ireland. The case of the peregrine falcon, actually, which features in several of the episodes, which um, when I was young was a species that was really... Kind of rare, you know. I really have a vivid memory of being driven out to the middle of the Peak District to see a um, a peregrine nest. There was a whole setup, you know, like a whole kind of porter cabin, and you had to get. It was an RSPB setup to go and see a peregrine falcon nest, which back then in in the kind of uh, early eighties was quite a rarity because that species had really declined because of the effect of pesticides and the changes in the law removing those pesticides, you know, DDT and similar things. So, so banning the use of those pesticides allowed for the recovery of peregrine falcons, sparrowhawk, in a way that those birds are now not uncommon. And it's a really good example of of how scientists in that case, recognizing an environmental problem, fed through into legislation. And so the legislation was passed and we're now seeing the benefits of that having these spectacular birds back, you know, just just very familiar to us. Their birds that I see every week.
0: Yeah, and that's happening quite rapidly, isn't it? Because if you think that's been a period of about 35, 40 years where that's happened, so we're not talking like hundreds of years. You make a change and you have to wait for centuries before you actually see anything. It's all happening really quite quickly.
1: Yeah, that's right. There, there's certainly some changes where the, the thing that's detrimental to nature is removed and nature recovers and can recover very quickly. Of course, there's other ecosystems which are much longer lived. So, so woodland ecosystems, as, as we've seen in the the wild out episode on on woodlands, that the trees there, some of them can live seven, eight hundred more years, uh, and so those ecosystems don't develop the full richness until they're tens or, or probably hundreds of years old. So they, they don't become kind of really biodiversity rich. Having said that, in the development stages, you know, as, as they're sort of developing the characteristics of an ancient woodland, there's still an enormous amount of biodiversity value. And that's a change that you you can see almost instantly as you start to create or regenerate woodland.
0: I did find that quite fascinating when it was talking about woodlands and it says about the um, English oak trees and just how important, I mean, everyone loves oak trees, everyone can identify them, or most people can, but when you find out we've got more than like other places in Europe and you think we're such a small country, yeah, it's so important, you know, these oak trees we've got.
1: Yeah, and there's a whole range of reasons for that around the fact that continental Europe has has got quite a quite a lot more different tree species so there's fewer kind of individual oak trees for example but also the the way the places where these oak trees exist many of them were traditional royal hunting parks for example and so that there was a reason to conserve them as such and and the kind of big old trees were part of that landscape whereas in in other places then kind of harvesting of uh of wood and sort of rotational planting and harvesting of woodland for for timber has been has been much more active than it has been in some of these places. But it I mean it really just shows how there are some things that despite all of the 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 fact that Britain is and Ireland are, are nature depleted places. Uh, that there is are still things of of real international importance. The oak trees is one, and then of course the the seabirds um, is uh, is another one that features very strongly in the series and the, the kind of great importance that we have in our coastlines for those seabirds.
0: And what is it about our location or our geology that makes us such an important place for seabirds?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, well, they, so so the the geology of Britain is very interesting. That that's what, one of the features of being a, a kind of Small island off the coast of a continent is that are well, the, this group of islands are made up of a whole mishmash of bits of geology that have come from different bits as as the tectonic plates have moved around and the, the sort of land masses have broken up and uh, and so particularly when you get to the north of Scotland, there's a whole complicated stew of uh, of all sorts of stuff that has made the geology there and the kind of fragments of that that make the many islands many of them with uh steep rocky cliffs um is absolutely ideal seabird nesting habitat and um particularly those islands that are sufficiently remote that they don't have any predators or or the cliffs that are sufficiently inaccessible that predators can't get to them that mainly the mammalian predators and, and also the rodents uh, so so they're, they're sort of natural refuges from the, the challenges that uh, that ground nesting birds face elsewhere. And, and so that's obviously why the seabirds nest there anyway and are adapted to nest in such places. But why they do so well is because we have a lot of that landscape around our coastline
0: at least that's good the ups store be unstoppable most locations are independently owned product services pricing and hours of operation may vary see center for details come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time
1: another day is here and you're
0: ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where bank of america can help for your financial to-dos bank of america has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and NA, member FDSE. So one of the um, sort of quite iconic um, parts of the series was when you had this these little puffins and they had their catch and they were desperately trying to get it back to their babies and they were being mobbed by these seagulls. And you just everyone was there rooting for these poor puffins. And I was wondering, how much were, I mean, People moan about seagulls, but, you know, gulls have got their place. But you think, how much of a nuisance are they to other seabirds? Are they any sort of threat or is it the amount of trouble they cause to puffins all sort of balances out?
1: Puffins and uh, I think in in um, the the first episode there it was herring gulls and black headed gulls. You know they're not strangers to each other. So so these are contests that have been going on probably for as long as those species have have been in existence. And then you know before then there would have been similar cases of a technical word is kleptoparasism. So or kleptoparasitism sorry so so stealing or parasites that steal and it it yeah you know, we don't tend to like people who steal things do we but it's kind of anthropomorphizing changing put putting that kind of human slant on what's going on there you know, they, these are just natural things that the gulls see the sand eels in the beak of a puffin as a resource that they can exploit and and they just try and do that in the way that all species try and exploit the resources around them but that's not to say that there can't be problems there so and and particularly where uh, a species has declined a lot for example or whether a range of other factors have put uh, have made a species vulnerable then then such natural processes can actually become problematic for the persistence of the species so so you, you can think about the the kind of the the natural environment the ecological niche of a species as being a kind of big wide space and it you know, species can kind of sort of mooch along and that. But then if you start to put pressure on it, then you sort of remove the space that that species can effectively walk in until it ends up on a little tightrope. And if that tightrope is about precisely how much food it's able to bring back to its young, and then there's other animals that are coming in and nicking that food, then you can, you can easily, just through natural processes, knock the species off its tightrope. So yeah, but but, but at present, I, I don't think we think that, that um, gull, kleptoparasitism is really a big threat for puffins that the the issues are really around the availability of food in in the sea and particularly of those sand eels.
0: I think they're in quite a steep decline aren't they the uh, sand eels that the puffins feed on?
1: Yeah they, they are in many places and and as well as the geology Helping to provide nesting sites. The other thing that makes our coastline very attractive is is our position in the oceans, um, where the, the climate is relatively mild, but still cool waters and nutrient rich waters mean that we have very rich marine life and very abundant marine life so so the abundance of uh, of fish in our seas is very high naturally is very high but but that has declined for a whole range of reasons including changes in climate and uh, to a degree uh, overfishing um and and that's the real threat to uh, puffins and other um, marine birds
0: now, sand eels aren't actually fished by people, are they? Is it just because of their, where their position is in the food chain that that then means that they get affected?
1: There's a combination of things. They are, they are fished by people actually uh, and exploited for. So they they they're used um, for the production of fish oils for a whole variety of uh, a whole variety of reasons and for for sort of fish based feed products for for the animals so they are exploited by people but also yes they underpin many other fish within ocean systems as well
0: so thinking now about another animal that's maybe quite rare is it's the hazel dormouse that we see now that's quite a surprise because it's quite rare i mean i've never seen one i'm sure most people who are listening to this have never seen a hazel dormouse yet in the uk we think of rodents as being quite ubiquitous we see rats we see mice around so what is it about the hazel dormouse that makes it just so rare
1: that's a very good question. Actually, it's a, it's a good sort of illustration of how what's happened to nature in Britain, uh, which which isn't that we've lost lots of rare species, because actually the hazel dormouse historically would have been very widespread. It's one reason why in Alice in Wonderland the dormouse features, and everybody kind of knows what a dormouse is, because obviously back then there were, there weren't TV series when when that was written there weren't tv series that would have been explaining to people what a dormouse is and you know that it hibernates and it looks all cute the dormouse is there because everybody would have kind of got it they would have known and and actually what's happened to nature in britain has been that we've lost stuff that was common and familiar to everybody and and widespread and abundant, and dormice live in uh, in woodlands and they feed on hazelnuts, hence the name hazel dormouse and and other uh, fruits and berries. And they've really declined because of the loss of woodland, and not just of woodland, but of woodland managed in a particular way that supports the growth of hazel. So hazel is a tree where if you chop it at the base, then it resprouts uh, and grows very successfully and makes good things like you know, poles that you might use for fences or for making chairs or anything like that. And so was harvested in a way that kept it growing, but that also meant that those woodlands would be full of hazel, making lots of nuts, and it would be sort of accessible to a little creature that likes to crawl around and, and climb up and down things. And with the loss of the management and the loss of the woodlands altogether, then hazel dormice has declined. And so quite a lot of the story of uh, what is now, well, it's it, it it's not a success yet, but but certainly there's there's been a reversal. I think in the the steep decline of dormice, has been an understanding of the importance of woodland management in conservation. So you can't just stick a fence around a woodland and let it go and and not manage it and expect to keep it. Everything that that was there. So it does need some some management and then legislation that has required any development in an area where Dormouse is expected to account for that and to mitigate the impact of uh, uh, the negative impact that there might be of development.
0: Now that's quite interesting where you say there that you have to sort of manage these woodlands as well to help the animals. So how is that related to um, sort of the hot word at the moment is rewilding, where we want to rewild the country and these are all the ways we can do it, put it back to how it was historically. But do we always need that degree of management there so we can make it as species rich as possible?
1: that's a, a really good question uh, and it's not an easy question to answer actually because I suppose the answer is that it depends there's there's no kind of one size fits all and in truth what we need to know is we need to know what we're doing and to to understand what we're doing and and there needs to be a purpose so so there is i think a place for just letting things go in some places but that wouldn't mean just letting nature run its course out of some sort of ideology, but 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 recognizing that in this particular place, that's the appropriate thing to do. You might in other places realize that if one were to do that, then then you would lose some biodiversity that you thought was important. So so dormice might be an example of that. And of course, before people had fundamentally changed the entire landscape of Britain and Ireland, there would have been sufficient habitat to have enough bits that would have supported these species on their own. But because we're talking about uh, very small areas, then, then actually there will be places where we do need to intervene to maintain the mix of habitats, the diversity of, uh, of habitats, to support species that exist there. Because if we did just leave them, then, then in, in some instances, many instances, then we might lose things that we would otherwise value.
0: So we talked there a little bit more about management. Now, this series, we concentrate quite a lot on the wildlife that we see. But do you think there could be more focus on some of the communities and people who are working to look after these animals and these habitats?
1: Well, I suppose the, the, the series is is a wildlife series. So so the the wildlife needs to be sort of front and centre in that. But that doesn't mean that that there isn't a need and an interest to, to sort of expose, yeah, or to, to see the enormous amount of work that that is being done to support wildlife and I think the involvement of the charities uh, WWF and RSPB and National Trust in this series is a, is a real plus because they're really the specialists at, at working with people to carry out conservation so so I think that that's very important and, and there's an opportunity that I hope uh, many people will engage with through this series to, to really get actively involved in nature conservation from the, the very small things like letting bits of your garden go a bit more nature friendly to to really maybe sort of doing hands on work and uh, and certainly from my point of view as a somebody who teaches people about nature and the natural environment, I hope uh, many people will be inspired to come and study and and uh, become the sort of next generation of conservation scientists and and help to tackle some of these problems. I think that the other thing that that's very important to acknowledge and to consider isn't just how people can get involved, but but that people are part of nature. And so a lot of what we need to deal with, not, not necessarily to deal with, but but what we need to consider in nature conservation, especially an island that is heavily populated and where every bit of the land means something to somebody, is, is how we work with people who are on the land and working the land to maintain their interests and their livelihoods whilst getting benefits for conservation. And that's kind of a challenging thing to do. It's it's why this is actually, you know, re- recovering wildlife in Britain and Ireland is difficult. It's be- because we can't just ignore what people think. And there are many people who've got different interests in the land and different interests in nature that we really need to work with and and take account of
0: and did you have a favorite species or imagery that we saw in the whole series
1: so many actually as, as a scientist then you you sort of think well i'm supposed to be interested in the really nerdy stuff the kind of really intricate details and there's, there's brilliant stuff in that so so there's a Fantastic! Well, a whole a whole bunch of um, sequences that are um, about the intricacies, particularly of the ecology of uh, of invertebrates, of the uh, insects and, and and stuff. And the so so the large blue butterfly is one that's a particular favorite. An absolutely crazy science fiction style story that, that I won't give any spoilers away for because really you you have to see it to believe it. You know, I I had read about. That over many years, how their life cycle works. And you, you think, okay, fine, this is interesting, but really, and seeing it actually on screen is uh it's just wild. But I, I as well as the nerdy small stuff, then I also really love the big spectacular things, and yeah, the, the kind of stuff that gives you goosebumps watching it. So the the orcas in Shetland and, and particularly the golden eagles, which is a uh, a bird that I've seen fairly often in the uplands but but the the footage of golden eagles and actually my favorite is bit of that was the the golden eagles nesting in the the caledonian pine woods and the sort of fantastic drone flights through the forest and then these eagles sort of flying up and landing on the nest as if kind of you know they don't weigh anything and yeah
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Instant Genius. That was ecologist Dr. Philip Wheeler, who's a consultant on the current series of Wild Isles, showing now on BBC One. The latest issue of BBC Science Focus magazine is out now. Pick up a copy and store, or visit sciencefocus.com.